You're listening to CinePunked. This episode, too much for one James Bond. Hi, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. We're recording this in March 2020, and at this stage we shall be getting very, very excited about the forthcoming release of the last of Daniel Craig's James Bond films, No Time to Die. Unfortunately, uh, as listeners will be aware, uh, unless you're listening to this about 100 years in the future and uh, you have forgotten what happened in the past, um, we are in the middle of a global pandemic called coronavirus, COVID-19, and uh, the producers have decided to postpone the release of the James Bond film by seven months. Uh, we have decided nonetheless, though, to carry on uh, with our planned James Bond programming anyway. No Time to Die uh, is the latest of the James Bond films and it has been beset by a number of production difficulties with changing of writers and directors, Daniel Craig having uh, suffered multiple injuries on set and uh, the general progress has been uh, something of a, of a shambles, shall we say, and it remains to be seen how good the actual final film is. Um, but it is not the first James Bond film to have suffered from a complicated production history. Back in 1967, producer Charles Feldman had acquired the rights for the uh, Ian Fleming novel Casino Royale and beating uh, producer Cubby Broccoli to acquiring the James Bond property. Now, Cubby Broccoli produced a number of James Bond films, starting with The Doctor No uh, in 1962. And uh, in 1967, Charles Feldman released his version of Casino Royale. And that is the centre of our attention today. Joining me to discuss this slice of 1960s psychedelia are the rest of the Cinepunked team. Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And Ben Simpson. Hello. First up, I suppose the question is, are you Bond fans? Oh, no. I don't hate it. Uh-huh. I don't have strong feelings about it. I think that Daniel Craig... Bond is at least making an effort to acknowledge some of the very legitimate criticisms of sexism, misogyny, um, all of those things that have been levelled against Bond historically. Um, I don't have strong feelings about Bond one way or the other. I watch it if it's around. I don't miss it if it's not. I'm certainly not devastated by the postponement of uh, No Time to Die. Fair enough. Ben, are you a Bond watcher? I've seen a few of them, yeah, but... um I wouldn't say I'm uh, a Bond fanatic. I, I cannot believe that my colleagues are <laughs> not Bond fans in any way, shape or form. This is news to me. Look, I've enjoyed some of the ones that I've watched. Uh-huh. Hint. See, <laughs> see, I grew up on a, on a diet of Bond films, I guess. There was something that, you, you know, were on television every Christmas, every Easter, every summer holiday. It seemed like there was a Bond film, mostly Roger Moore. Um... And I, I suppose inadvertently I've, I've grown rather fond of them and watched them all multiple times. Um, yeah, I can understand that. It's like me and Blade Runner. I can't watch Blade Runner critically. If I watched Blade Runner critically, I would be forced to connect with all of the things that, you know, the, the very legitimate objections that people have to Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've never had that with Bond, so I've never had to look at it critically because I look at it and go, it doesn't really work for me, so... But if we talk about James Bond films, um, there's also, I think, a, a very definite sense of we, we think we know what they're about. We are pretty sure, someone said to me the other day, they're they're all the same, basically. You know, if you're upset, I think actually it may have been our friend Neil Sedgwick who, who posted a thing on, on Twitter saying, if you're upset about uh, the new James Bond film being delayed, don't worry, they're all the same. 
Um, I mean, would that be your general take on on the Bond franchise? Yeah, it would be mine. Yeah. Um, to an extent. To an extent. It it does make an effort to reinvent itself. Um, I certainly I. Well, I, I'm like you, if I was to grow up with any Bond at all, it would be Roger Moore. Mm. Roger Moore is the person I think of when I think of James Bond. Um, and I remember I remember bizarrely watching a James Bond film on a school trip when I was in P7. Why on earth we were watching James Bond on a P7 school trip, I don't know. <laughs> but I do remember one of the teachers commenting sarcastically that the actress's hair was perfect after the dramatic rescue scene. <laughs> so obviously a big impression was made on young Rachel. Um I think they're broadly the same. I think that very schoolboyish humour that um, has accompanied the Bond films historically is noticeably absent in in the era of the gritty reboot. Um, Daniel Craig as Bond is a lot less joyful than the likes of Pierce Brosnan, who was clearly having the time of his life making those films. Um, equally, sort of the Connery Bond is a lot more sinister to me than mm. than maybe the Timothy Dalton Bond. Oh, you can't be frightened of Timothy Dalton. He's lovely. <laughs> um, uh, Roger Moore, honestly, I feel like I need to wash my hands if I watch anything with him as Bond. See, it's one of the criticisms that has been levelled at the Bond films in recent years is that um, I think whenever they did do the gritty reboot, which which wasn't entirely unusual. I mean, Timothy Dalton's Bonds were grittier. Uh, and certainly there was a reference, there's been references at various points to the, the Pierce Brosnan films to elements of, of just how out of place Bond was in many respects. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think people felt a little bit odd whenever the, the the reboot started, and there wasn't, for instance, the gadgets that we got so used to. Hugh was absent for the first film. Um, well, were- yes, but if you think about that version of Casino Royale, I mean, I'm not no medical doctor, um, I, but I I do remember watching the sequence where Daniel Craig gives himself. Um, uh, what the, he he applies the electric paddles to restart his heart when he's almost dead. Now I'm, I mean that's very gadgety. I'm pretty sure that's not actually possible. Well, I wouldn't want to risk it myself, certainly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, but those sort of things. Whenever the gadgets weren't there, whenever the cars when we were not as ubiquitous, whenever the the humor was somewhat lacking. I mean, the Bond films have evolved, and Daniel Craig's have changed slightly over time as well although he's still certainly far grittier and far more urban and, and, and far more um, dark but uh, part of the reason uh, that we're discussing uh, today's choice of film is that well I, th- I think you know I was I was convinced that you guys probably hadn't seen this before but there is a Bond film that exists within the canon that does not fall into the same mold as any other Bond film ever <laughs> yeah it doesn't that's saying something <laughs> and that is the 1967 Casino Royale, the second version of Casino Royale ever to hit the screens. There was a TV version made in the 1950s as well. Like what I couldn't get about this movie is like just, just it, the one thing. It, well, one of the things that really jarred it with me mm-hmm. um, is it supposed to be a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so I because <laughs> that's how it came across. Like, I, I had to look this up. Yes, it's supposed to be a comedy, but I had to look it up. It is? <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I, I fear that possibly a little bit of, of, of sort of plot uh, description is needed for oh, an audience. Oh, good luck. For an Go audience that then. is not familiar with it. And I'll keep <laughs> Tell it. us what happened. There is no 
plot. Let, <laughs> let me keep it very, very succinct. Um, so David Niven plays James Bond. Uh, he has retired and gone himself off to the countryside. Uh, unfortunately, the evil organisation Smirsh uh, come back on the scene and the MI, uh, the, the Ministry of Defence, decide to bring James Bond out of retirement in order to combat um, this dark, dastardly plan from the villainous henchmen, etc., etc., um, and one of the, uh, this this Bond is someone who is much more, um, he's much more solitary, he's much more asexual, um, he's also a little bit cooler, a little bit more collected. Um, but one of their, their plans in order to combat the, uh, the, the Finnish forces is that they're going to name all their spies James Bond in order to cause confusion. Um, and the and that is kind of it in a nutshell. Really, there's not an awful lot more to it. And the only kind of passing nod we really have to what we recognise as James Bond Casino Royale is a showdown with Le Chief in uh, a casino. Uh, the Chief at this point played by Orson Welles, and uh, he's facing an opponent played by Peter Sellers, who is apparently uh, he's playing the character Tremble, who wrote the book on Baccarat. I, I really can't describe it more than that without actually giving away huge swathes of, of, of stuff that, that might help you make sense of it. I, th- I think it's finding away huge swathes of stuff because it's not going to make it any more comprehensible to people. Uh, probably not. No, I mean, this is a film that had a very, very long and complicated uh, production history. Um, it is directed by not one, not two, not three, not four. Or five, but six different directors. So six directors. Uh, that's Ken Hughes, John Houston, Joseph McGrath, Robert Parrish, Val Guest, and an uncredited, uncredited Richard Talmadge. You see, what I find most interesting about that is these are these are not small name directors. These are not small name cast members either. I mean, this this reads like a who's who of nineteen sixties cinema. Oh yeah, it's, I mean, you know, Peter it, it, O'Toole randomly turns up to drop one line and then buggers off for the rest of the film <laughs> and isn't even credited in the end. Everybody who is anybody is in this film, and yet it's so utterly, completely. Bananas. I mean, I, I've never seen anything quite like this. I didn't hate it at all by any stretch. Um, I certainly didn't love it, but I was just constantly bewildered by it. I was really confused whenever I watched it. <laughs> like, I had to go back and rewatch it. It's like six different, you know, well, yeah, it's six different movies in, in one movie. Like, uh, I don't know. It just made no sense to me. Like, there's, there's a bit. I mean, I, I, I'm gonna randomly uh, just drop spoilers all over the place because I actually genuinely don't think you can spoiler this film. No, and actually, it, you can. To be fair, you could tell. No matter what you know about this film, it is nothing compared to actually experiencing yeah. it. Um, and nothing I say about various different plot elements is going to make any difference whatsoever to one's ability to forecast these plot elements happening in the film. Uh-huh. So there's one completely random bit where uh, Peter Sellers, as uh, Evelyn Tremble, as James Bond, leaves the casino um, to chase after Vesper Lind who's absolutely Ursula Andress is fantastic in this I absolutely loved her Um, she's been kidnapped he jumps into a Formula One racing car 
because reasons, um, gives a funny little weird speech in a strange accent to camera. Breaks the fourth wall. Breaks the fourth wall, drives off in pursuit of her. Next sequence, and I genuinely thought, have I passed out or something? Did I lose consciousness and the film moved on without me? Next sequence, without any explanation at all, he's in the the clutches of Le Chiffre being tortured. What? Grand Prix enthusiasts may be worried by the amount of time it's taken me to get into this Lotus Formula 3. What they don't realize is that although Le Chief thinks he has a faster car than me, I am faster in my Lotus Formula 3. <laughs> now, I discovered after the fact that uh-huh. since Peter Sellers walked off set and refused to film the rest of his lines and they just went sod it and smooshed it all together. <laughs> Serious? Yeah, it's. it's it, just I mean, bananas. Probably a huge part. I mean, the film was probably already confused enough. Um, but during production, there's there's different reports about it. That way, they uh, killed him off then. Yeah, yeah, partly. That was after he walked off set. They had to work out suddenly how to make the third act make sense. Now, making sense, I think, in this case is it's a very subjective thing, considering it involves a fucking spaceship well suggesting there's a third act is, is bizarre <laughs> enough um I, I, yeah so the, there are different sort of accounts of it over the years and and the truth lays somewhere in between them all but peter sellers uh basically originally wanted to do the film as a straight role um so elvin tremble is presented he plays it actually he does play his bits for the most part fairly straight um, he's not as charismatic as, as the likes of Sean Connery, so why he ever thought that he would be a good James Bond, I don't know. But Massive that, ego? Massive ego, quite probably. Um, but the story is that when he was shooting his, his scenes with Orson Welles um, as the chief, uh, Joe McGrath was the director at that stage, and that was someone that Sellers had specifically wanted to work with because they'd done stuff uh, together before, and he respected him. Um, but... Sellers was quite annoyed by the production process. He was allegedly intimidated by Orson Welles. Orson Welles, who, is, as you know by now, Ben, is also a director with a huge ego. Yep. And, you know, also a little bit unreliable and unstable at times. You've got these two personalities that are actually kind of live wires in their own little way. Uh, Sellers was getting increasingly frustrated because Wells was doing all these magic tricks on set. <laughs> That's right, he does magic tricks does ma- <laughs> So, and, uh, you know, so he's doing those magic tricks on set. And rather than the director saying, no, 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 the director's going, yeah, okay, you just do your magic. So Wells is taking control of that. Sellers is getting increasingly frustrated and there's a point where he just refuses to come back on and do his scenes with with Wells, so they're having to shoot them separately. When you're quite ready. My next experiment, I require the use of a perfectly ordinary gentleman's pocket handkerchief. From the pocket of one perfectly ordinary gentleman. That's the, the kind of remark that leads to war. How much better for all humanity if all the nations could learn to live together in peace. Oh, marvellous, marvellous. <laughs> And Sellers did what he did a number of times on films during that era. He buggered off. He basically just walks off, doesn't come back. How did that guy get any work? um, Well, he he didn't. I mean, this is a reputation that Sellers himself got much, you know, was was something that people suddenly became aware of Sellers. Now, personally, I think Sellers is a fantastic actor and a fantastic performer. And if you watch his stuff in the 1950s, so films like um, I'm All Right, Jack, uh, the um, Lady Killers or, you know, you and I are both fans of The Goon Show, so we're very, very familiar with those. Even the Pink Panther films. Um, 
he he's actually a great performer, but when he is allowed to indulge his ego, um, he can get a little bit unstable. Also, he he tends to get a little bit a little bit too demanding. He needs a bit of control, and whenever he's competing with somebody else who he sees as a threat, he just seems to go off the rails completely and becomes utterly unreliable. So actually, he probably did himself out of a lot of great work, and why a lot of the films that you see him doing at the end of the sixties and into the seventies often are a bit shit. Yeah. Quite honestly, there's no other way to describe it. They are just a bit shit. Um, always interesting because there's usually something in his, in his performance that's there, um, but but they're not they're not great. So because he walks off set, it leaves huge chunks in the stuff that they're filming. Now, bearing in mind each, you know, there's a number of kind of star performers, and you've got a director that's doing their little sections. So when Sellers walks off, that leaves things in a bit of a mess. And I think it's director Val Guest who comes on to to try and bridge everything together. And whilst it's not incredibly apparent where the bridging is all the time, um, it's it would have been an even bigger disconnected mess had he not done the stuff. And that's why he gets an additional screenwriter, an additional uh, credit on the start of the film. Um, he didn't want to be specifically listed down as having done those bits, but he did. So they kind of give him a second credit. Um, so yeah, so that's why So when Sellers jumps into the car, <laughs> his capture was never recorded so they have to go from him being in the car to him being being tortured the same at the end of the film as you pointed out you know he's there you can see him in the room with everybody else and then it's clear that they start using they start freezing images they start going back through stuff that they've shot already because he's buggered off he didn't finish the work and James James Bond well Evelyn Tremble James Bond was never intended to be killed off no was he don't think so no yeah it was just a necessity um, er, er, everyone was killed off but I, yeah. I, for me I think this is part of like for Spoiler. me <laughs> but this is what for me makes it work in a weird way Sellers forcing them to, to, to rethink around it suddenly makes it slightly more bizarre I imagine this is a great film if you're high in many respects <laughs> like it does feel very very trippy Yeah. Uh, I mean I, I wasn't high when I watched it I just felt like I was <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> um, but I mean it, it opens up on a, on a completely I mean, even just take the opening. I mean, this is a film that subverts the James Bond mythology right from the off when you have what we then assume at the start is James Bond as Evelyn. You know, we don't think it's Evelyn Tremble at the start. We assume that Sellers is playing Bond and he's in a piss, he's in a pissoir in, in, in Paris. You know, he's having a piss and he gets basically... Oh, is that what he's doing? Yes. I that's, no that's, 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 that's a gent's public convenience. Right, I had literally no idea. Getting Still bas- don't understand the relevance of that sequence to the rest Neither of the do film. I. But, I mean, there's him getting chatted up by a policeman, basically. You what know, the French policeman with the Scottish accent from later? So why? What? What? <clears throat> Just what? I don't know. I think that was... I think there's a bit of time mm-hmm. uh, manipulation going on there. Mm-hmm. Like, the way it starts... With that, uh, that scene um, with him um, and the the police officer, um, then he gets in the car, mm-hmm. and then they there's the car wash and all that stuff. Yeah, that, that happens later. But that yeah. scene with them and they're sitting in the wee booth thing. Um, Mr. Bond. Yes? I'm Lieutenant Mathis of the Special Police. These are my credentials. They appear to be in order. Come with me.
I mean, this is part of uh, a series of films that are getting made at that time that are kind of madcap. Yeah. Um, they're getting increasingly bizarre and increasingly unstable, and the narratives are somewhat disjointed. This is a style of, of, I guess, comedy that's coming in. Um, I mean, comedy in its loosest possible way, because sometimes it doesn't feel all that funny. Um, it just feels bizarre and surreal. Yeah. And that, I mean, for me, in a way as well, I, you know, I can link that back to the goons and their kind of uh, riffing that they do with 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 their sort of stuff, and it makes sense in a strange way. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. I mean, there is something sort of vaguely Python-esque. I'm much mm-hmm. more familiar with Python than with the goons. Mm-hmm. There's something vaguely Python-esque about the surrealist humour in that. But, I mean, there was always a point to the humour in the Pythons, even if that point was just nuts. This just feels like it's nuts because it's why nuts. the hell not? I'm, I, th- I think it's a cinema of excess. I mean, this was a film... Oh, definitely that, yes. You can see the money they've thrown at the screen. Oh, yeah. Uh, partly because as they get into more and more difficulties, they just chuck more money on it yeah. rather than anything else. Um, it's I mean, a- one of my favourite bits, one of my absolute favourite bits is the bit where uh, Matt Bond is introduced mm-hmm. through this phenomenal uh, set piece on this gorgeous, um, clearly purpose-built set. And it's such a throwaway moment. A beautiful dance. Absolutely gorgeous. Everything about it is immaculate and beautifully presented. And there's a ton of money on display. And Mm. you go, why? I mean, she's, okay, she's an important character to the plot, but out of all of the possible ways, I mean, why build this this huge set for no reason for the sequence that doesn't need to be there? Mm. Because why the hell not seems to be the response. Why not? Just sure. Let's just do it. It's uncanny, quite uncanny, what memories it brings back. Paris, Berlin, Vienna, how madly we danced through the night. I was disguised as a Hungarian hussar. What are you going on about? You're the very image of your mother, and every bit as beautiful. You knew my mum. I am Sir James Bond. Daddy. My child. Mm. I think... I mean, Feldman had seen the success of the Cubby Broccoli films. Um, there were four of them by this point already. And this came out uh, within a couple of months of, I think it was only, You, uh, you Only Live Twice. Right. Um, so, it, you know, it's coming back on the back of one of the, the actual Bond films. It does better than it. This actually gets, I think, makes makes more money than the than the official Bond film that year. It's made more money. Yeah, it was a. It also cost them more commercial <laughs> success. Yeah, you know, I again, I mean, this it gets the comparison to a film that I know very, very well. It's the same decade, which is uh, the the Taylor, the Burton Taylor Cleopatra, Cleopatra. Mm. and it's was it called the, the the Bond Cleopatra or something like that. It's it gets dubbed anyway in in connection with that Cleopatra. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not. It, it doesn't spend nearly the same money as Cleopatra does, obviously. Um, but again, it it makes a lot of money back. It does. Which I find bizarre. I mean, who was going to see this in droves anyway? People were. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, similar. Which is interesting. This is remembered as a success. Mm-hmm. This film, Cleopatra, is remembered as a failure when in fact it wasn't a failure. It was a box office success. It was one of the highest-grossing films of that decade. Um, but 
because the money involved in making it was so exorbitantly, ridiculously high. I mean, in adjusted dollars today, that film would have cost $440 million to make. Um, And you you can't make that back in the box office, no matter how successful you you might Mm. be. Whereas this film, you know, only cost $12 million, Mm. um, $1967. And and it makes back something like $41 Mm. um, globally. But, which again, yeah, I mean, everybody's happy with that. I think I think you're wrong. I mean, this film isn't generally for most people. This film isn't well remembered, um, and its reputation is one of a, a film that didn't quite work, that cost far too much money. Well, if you the, the reviews are savage. Oh, why that's excessive! But audiences uh, went to see it, and presumably they went to see it more than once. Um, I uh, back in the mid two thousands, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe and I saw a one man show about this called "The Seven Spies at the Casino," uh, which was uh, delivered by uh, the actor Paul Lavers, who some may remember from the old days of QVC of all places. Um, but Paul told the story uh, from the point of view of David Niven on, on board this bizarre production uh, where everything is just excessive and weird and, and falling apart and ego-driven. Um, I mean, David Niven is 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 sort of quite an interesting choice for Bond in this as well, I, I think. It's also not the first time that Sellers and Niven have worked together. They were in the original Pink Panther film. Um, he uh, Niven is the sort of the fiendish cad and, and Sellers obviously was Clouseau back when Clouseau was kind of played straighter than he was later on. In my day, spying was an alternative to war, and the spy was a member of a select and immaculate priesthood, vocationally devoted, sublimely disinterested. Thank you. Hardly a a description of that sexual acrobat who leaves a trail of beautiful dead women like blown roses behind him. He's he's weird. (laughs) He's weird. Yeah. (laughs) Go on. Please, please elaborate on that, Ben. No, um, in a film full of weird things, you've picked David Niven as weird. Oh yeah, I thought he was a weird choice for a bomb. Oh, that's interesting. I think only if you take it as the idea of being like, is he the OG original Bond? Like, is that yeah is that what we're getting at? Yeah. So this is this is Bond having retired, right? Um, and he uh, lives in a massive house and yeah, surrounded, surrounded by, by lions. lions. Yeah, and he. He spends most of his day hanging upside down so he can wash his intestines out. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell is all that about? See, I quite like the idea of this being an older Bond. I mean, it puts Bond back in the era that the books were written in. Yeah. More than than sort of what we get, which is this younger version of him. Oh, I think for older Bond, David Niven is an absolutely fantastic choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, automatically it's calling to mind that sort of debonair, sort of uh, genteel, um, upper class English, very, very specific sense of Englishness. Yeah. And I, I did genuinely love the idea of James Bond um, you know the OG James Bond looking back at or looking forward at, at what the James Bond name has become and thinking good god these men are horrible and it's a, a, there's a nice little reference there to the the Broccoli film franchise when he talks about this Bond that has taken on his name and is bedding all these women it's just, mm-hmm. it's just not what I would have done at all how dare you do that I, yeah. like, I like that. That's a nice little touch and it's a nice little swipe at, at the franchise that has been building up. There's sort of a, a meta-awareness that this is a character that exists beyond this space. So saying that, this movie was just filled with women. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Uh, this may be what originally <laughs> is is this what drew the teenage me to the film? I do not know. <laughs> I haven't. I didn't think about this much until I was watching this again last week, and I thought, hmm, okay, maybe. But I, I mean, again, I and I'm not a huge Bond expert, but I understand that this has been a source of debate amongst Bond fans. Um, this idea that the 007. Um, thing is is not necessarily fixed to one person and that that's the reason why bond keeps changing appearances mm. because uh, it's fluid and it's it's not it doesn't refer to a person it refers to an agent I, I think within the context of the films that's probably the case although the narrative is always a little bit confusing because i mean it was george lazenby who you know in one of his i think it's his opening line of of, of um on her Majesty's secret service says this never happened to the other fella mm. you know it's a deliberate swipe at sean connery in the role before him yeah um so yeah i mean that that's a whole other um area that that, that is hot for debate but it's very clear from this film that basically anybody can be james bond and actually i think that's one of the joys is that actually you we we could all be james bond there's this Recently, you may have noted that there was a lot of fuss in the press about some of the advanced publicity for No Time to Die whenever they were talking about introducing another 007 who was a female. This mm. Casino Royale in 1967 mm. has the first female James Bond. Yeah, it has a lot of female James Bonds. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that just joyous? I mean, we, we're, we're getting so worked up about this in, in 2020, but this has been done 40, you know, like nearly five decades, five decades ago. This is this is already an old idea. Why why are we work, working ourselves off about it? And well, this is, I, that's a question that I ask anyway, just in general. Why is it a big deal? But anyway, carry on. But I mean, for me, this is the joy. This film is so transgressive. It's so subversive. It takes a. I actually think it's quite affectionate in many ways. It takes this beloved franchise and this the, all these tropes and it throws them up in the air and it ask, makes us ask what it is that we accept from these films. Um. No. Okay. Yeah, I think you. I think you're maybe trying to ascribe a, a a greater sense of purpose to the whole than necessarily exists, um, and I think possibly were it to be one singular vision mm. that might work. But Rachel, you're not a fan of auteur theory, so why should it only be one vision to have something that isn't, you know? Well, I may not be a fan of auteur theory, but I know that if you have a novel that is comprised of um, a, a series of short stories all by different authors, mm. you don't have a novel. You have a, a, an anthology of short stories. I mean, this is an anthology of, of short films about James Bond tied together by um, the, the simply by the thematic consistency of casting the same actors in each. I, I, I think that there are... Two points in this film where I definitely feel that we've gone into another film. Maybe, maybe three. Certainly the the, the Le Chiffre plot with the Casino Royale itself feels like a little film in its own right. And is the most bond, arguably the most bondish moment of the whole film. Yeah. Um, the beautiful dance sequence with Madabond is definitely belongs to some other film oh, entirely. Yeah. Um, and the other one is... It's actually a bit leading in. It's a bit in the in West Berlin, or East Berlin, where they go into this uh, the spy college. The spy college. The the, the, this whole homage to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Why was it German expressionist other than it was in Germany? I I don't really understand. I, uh, just because it was because somebody had seen German expressionism. <laughs> I don't know. Why do we use imagery from that film in in our branding? You know, like. 
Does yeah, it... that, that, that's that's a different thing, though. We we didn't construct an entire very expensive set out of it for no discernible purpose. Our productions are very expensive, Rachel. Don't you dare tell our listeners they're oh, anything yes. else. <laughs> we chuck money at the stage always. Feels like we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't know, uh, but then I think this is where um, you've got a film that that that, that is. It, it's sort of allowing each of its different directors to put their own little stamp on it and to create something that is different, that is unusual, that that suddenly by its combination becomes more interest. I mean, for me, it's, it makes it more interesting to have all these different elements. Uh, it does feel more trippy. I mean, I see the whole thing as some sort of psychedelic trip. Really? Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure there's any other way to see it. Yeah. No, there's not. You know, that whole end sequence with the with the sequence with the Pipers um, is very definitely, uh, you know, a fantasy sequence. The whole thing. Just, <laughs> uh, re- regardless of whether they had actors uh, choosing to stay on stage or not, mm-hmm. is, like, um, yeah, it was just... just ben- Complete bonkers. Yeah. Can you see any appeal in it? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, uh, you know, near the end of the movie, whenever they're all getting captured, or um, was it me? What did what do you call his his nephew Jimmy Bond? No daughter. Oh, his daughter Mata. Mata, Mata, Mata. When she gets kidnapped, you know, when he's going in to see the mm-hmm. prime minister, and then a bloody UFO yeah. appears. Like what? I I don't know. This is where I have to say it as a psychedelic trip, because that if you take it in in the sense that this is just a piece of surrealist um, fantasy, and then he's so that, blasé about you know. Oh yes, no, don't worry. It, it was only a UFO. We've got fighter jets following it, and <laughs> oh, you've lost it. Oh, yeah. I, funny enough, I was watching uh, reams and reams of the X Files either side of, of rewatching this film. So in a weird way, this all made perfect sense to me. <laughs> Okay, so maybe that's the thing to do. Just completely saturate your brain with imagery and go in and watch it and discover new links between things. Well, let's, let's say this. Okay, so we, um, we're we doing a bunch of recording sessions today. Yeah. So the, the listeners will get to listen to them unless they're like us. After They'll probably do it over a series of weeks. Yeah. Right. So, But when we're doing them back to back, you've seen all those films one after another. Uh-huh. And there is a kind of juxtaposition, the, the, those kind of collisions between the different films. You start to see them in a different way. Um, they can be very, very different in tone as well. But in a weird way, they sort of become one big thing. Are you talking about the spaceship in Life of Brian? Do you know what? Actually, that that was an observation I... I I completely forgot about that scene until I watched it yesterday. I was like, when the hell was there a spaceship (laughs) in Life of Brian? There was a spaceship in Life of Brian as well. That makes makes no sense. And that has no no purpose in being there. And that that makes no sense within the context of that film. In the same way that this makes no sense within the context of Casino Royale. Is this, you know... I think by that point you've got so much excess thrown at the screen that to have a to have a spaceship actually kind of is okay. Honestly, yeah. By that stage, I didn't even care. I thought, you know, I I have no hope of having the faintest idea of what's going on here. Just just let it happen. Um, and once I stopped worrying about it making sense because I was certain that it didn't, um, I kind of just sat back and enjoyed it until Woody Allen came on the screen. Ah, I wonder when we get to Woody. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, is this because you just can't stand Woody I Allen? I can't stand Woody Allen. I don't want to see him. Everything about him makes me angry. So, um, yeah, everything about him on this made me angry. And I just, yeah, I was 
quite glad to see him explode. Um, I think this is your first exposure to Woody Allen so far, Ben. Um, quite possibly. It's, it's one of the names that we, we, we talked about on the show before. Um, he's one of our, in inverted commas, problematic characters, thanks to uh, other other things about his life. But that it's put it in the context, this is 1967. That stuff is 20 years and nearly 30 years in the future. Right. So we're looking, let's try and look at Woody Allen in the context of this film, in the context of the era. Oh yeah, and I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense to have him there because why the hell not? Everybody else <laughs> in the world is in this film, so why not Woody Allen as well? Sure, chuck him in. He can be James Bond's nephew. Sure, absolutely it, it, fine. Go at this point, it. he's a star on the rise in the States. Um, he's, been quite popular on television. He's starting to make his move into films. Right. This is before he starts making all his own films, just entirely in charge. Yeah. This is him um, sort of as a guest, guest spot. Although he does write his own material, which is very, very obvious because it just feels like Woody Allen patter the whole way through. Yeah. Think of it, madame. A world free of poverty and pestilence and war. A world where all men are created equal. Where a man, no matter how short, can score with a top broad. Where each man, regardless of race, creed, color, gets free dental work. And a chance, a subscription buying, of all the good things in life. But Noah, you are for all this. No, no, I'm, I'm against all this. I mean, I, this is, the thing is, I just, I, I don't understand how this movie was presented to the actors involved in it. Well, I, apparently, I, <laughs> some of, the, I mean, this is the thing, though, some of the actors apparently did their bits in the film just so they could work with the other actors. Peter O'Toole wanted to work on it just just for the crack. Yeah. I um, mean, I, and I, once you've got, you know, that critical mass of A-list actors, then yeah, I could see why. But the original people signing on, I mean, so go to him and go, David Nivens, you're a well-respected star of screen and stage. You know, you've got all kinds of awards for just being amazing at everything. How about you jump into this complete catastrophe mess of a thing we don't really know what's going to happen in any of it being directed by six different people it's probably about james bond but also there's six of them so or seven james bonds and there's a spaceship still up for it god yeah but then i mean for 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 someone like david niven who by this point is no longer a young man i mean this is a chance for him to to appear in something but it's also a chance for him to appear in something that's contemporary that that will potentially garner him a new younger audience which is not necessarily a bad thing for you know an actor who by this point is is well into his 50s or 60s um okay. that, that makes, makes slightly more sense yeah uh, in terms of Woody Allen's involvement uh, I mean Woody Allen Peter Sellers Peter O'Toole and uh, Charles Feldman had worked together a couple of years previously on the film What's New Pussycat um which Woody Allen had had written uh, Sellers stars in Peter O'Toole co-stars in and uh, Charles Feldman who producer of this had also produced so I mean there was a kind of um when you've worked with those people before, there's a reason for them to come involved. Uh, Ursula Andrus is a great choice for, for Vesper Lynn, simply because she is the original Bond girl. And she's just wonderful. What is the purpose of your visit? I desperately need your help. My dear Sir James, I hardly ever undertake assignments these days. I can see why, but I think I can persuade you to undertake this one. Your reputation is remarkable. But believe me when I say I save all my energies for business. <laughs> I have here a writ for just over five million pounds tax arrears. If you were to be cooperative, Miss Lind, I could arrange easy payments and a substantial discount. You know, so there's almost a legitimacy to this illegitimate... Uh, this is basically the bastard Bond film that this put this on us, Lee. Um, and this ends at a layer of authenticity. 
you know this is this is the offspring that you know the the, the sort of in in a much more traditional sense of the word this is the offspring that was sort of ignored but actually is part of it that is part of that 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 world and is now legitimately owned by um the the, the people who own the rest of the bond films all right mm. i just i can't imagine what the overall reaction must have been to seeing the fi- the, the finalized piece Smoke. by these actors I, I should have smoked more pot, probably. Probably. So that's what I was acting in? I mean, do, do, is there any of this on record as to what the actors thought of it? <laughs> Bits and pieces, I think. Yeah. I mean, most of them... Um, Wells doesn't... I, mean, I was reading Peter Bogdanovich's interview book with Wells this morning, and uh, Wells kind of dismisses it fairly quickly. He, he he talks a little bit about working with Joe McGrath, who you know was okay until McGrath left the film. I think Sellers may have got him sacked mm-hmm. and then replaced, which was something else that Sellers was prone to doing, was to getting directors sacked and, and sending them into breakdowns. Um, I once talked to uh, director Pierce Haggard, who directed him in the Finnish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. And uh, Sellers had Pierce sacked from that film and then took over. Right. You know, I mean, this was something his ego would do on a regular basis. I mean, he does sound like a bit of a prick. That's he, he was. I mean, a, a genius performer, but also a bit of a prick. Yeah. Um, As were a lot of the people involved in this. Um, People seem to be enjoying themselves, though, and this is the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, Orson Welles looks like he's having the time of his life. I, I, I kind of think he might have been born to play Le Chiffre. Yeah, um, I wouldn't it not have been better to have him in a full-length, proper Bond film? Dear God, yes. I wish this had happened. Yeah, as a, as a villain. As a villain, yeah. You know, he's, he's just, he's got that Wellesian glint in his eye that says, you know, I am definitely cleverer than you and I have control over what's happening here in a way that you just don't even understand but the, I but, love it but there is also an element of parody within Wells's performance within this I mean yeah, well, well, Wells is so intelligent about this sort of stuff I mean Wells literally rewrites how cinema is made in the 1940s so it, it makes perfect sense to me that he's doing this on several layers of meta mm. I mean, the, the ma- I mean, for me, the magic is probably a little bit excessive. Um, oh yeah, the magic makes no f- sense whatsoever. I mean, it's, oh yeah, Orson Fine do magic, levitate <laughs> somebody. Why the hell not? I think it's. A, I suppose narratively, it's a distraction technique. But this is this is sort of the the wells that that the start of the wells that we will audiences will know much later on the sort of the parody of the wells that is there's a caricature of himself. It's no longer just this filmmaker; he's a personality in his own right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, um, in terms of some of the other people, as far as I'm aware, I mean, if you were working on a section of the film and you weren't necessarily working with everybody else, it probably was quite fun. Uh, Ronnie yeah. Corbett looks like Call he's having Ronnie a great Corbett time as well. Yes, randomly shows up. <laughs> Just wow, he's a really creepy little character. Well, <laughs> oh, didn't like that. The, the little robot man. Yeah. No. The what? The little robot man. It's a little robot man? Yeah, he's like a... It's, it's, it's got a battery. It's got a battery oh, on him. right, yes. Yeah. I, I just always taken that as him being a robot, although Have it's probably... You? Yeah, I know it's I probably just his heart. Like Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, here to enroll as a student. What are your qualifications? Mm-hmm. I am the daughter of Marta Hari. <laughs> Marta Hari! You are a liar. Am I? What about this then? I told him to come back. Silence! Or I will switch you off. Oh, not that. Anything but that. 
you know, and Bernard Cribbins also looks like he's having a great time. I mean, oh yeah, these, I forgot he was in it. Th- there is uh, so many. Um, sort of talented British comic actors in there. Um, also, we've got the first Irish James Bond in this film. Mm. The first Irish James Bond? Yeah. Uh, Coop. Uh, really? Cooper. Uh, Cooper's Terence Cooper, who's from Carmoney in County Antrim, oh, just across the river from where we're standing right now. Um, yeah, so he's a, a Northern, Irish, Northern Irish actor. A first class performance, Cooper. Excellent, excellent. Your primary statistics seem to fit the bill. We aren't a please, sir. You will start your AFSB training immediately. Money Penny, get a few dozen girls for Cooper to start with. Money Penny. Uh, a few dozen girls. I appreciate your confidence, sir. From now on, all remaining agents and trainees will be known as James Bond 007, including the girls. Won't that be rather confusing, sir? Exactly. The enemy won't know which way to turn. You are now James Bond. Congratulations, 007. And uh, you, 007, uh, sir. Good hunting, 007. But I mean, uh, look. Overall, was this work a film that was worth having a look at? Yes, I'm so glad I watched it. I'm never going to watch it again. <laughs> but I'm so glad I watched it. Um, just, I, I, I don't know how it made me feel. It made me feel something. But I, I recommend everybody has a look at it. Just, just for the sheer, what the hell am I watching factor? Uh, I suggest you don't waste your time. <laughs> You can find nothing good to say about this film. Uh, no. What What about the one thing we haven't touched on, the soundtrack? Oh, the soundtrack is That's, amazing. It's bizarre as well. Like, it's just so... The Look of Love. Yeah. Bacharach soundtrack. What? So nice of you to come. My pleasure. This way. The look of love is in your eyes. A look, your smile came disguised. How did they get these people? I'm starting to see some. Uh huh. Go on. You can say it. There's a reason that, I, that there are reasons I'm, I suggest that we watch this film. Yeah, so come on. And, what, uh, are you, what are you seeing? Austin Powers. You're seeing Austin Powers, right? Yeah. But yeah. also with the whole spaceship thing. Uh huh. That's like the submarine in the third one. And the third Austin Powers film. And, and okay. you know the little things that they drive about the wee cars whenever yeah. they're driving through the, the uh-huh. door yeah that's like gold members okay thing oh right you know so so, so and then the the whole eye patch like uh-huh x-ray vision through to see the cards you know whenever he's playing 21 yeah so um whilst maybe you're not getting a lot of this from a bond perspective you're getting a, a i'm a, seeing the influences how this bizarre film influenced other things influenced other things yeah okay and I suppose that's kind of the thing as well, isn't it? The, the, however mental this particular iteration of Bond might be, uh-huh. Bond itself is full of absolute nonsense. Oh, yeah. I mean, just because it's tied together by a narrative thread that actually progresses um, according to human expectation uh, doesn't mean that the stuff that happens along the way is any less 
utterly crazy. An invisible car? Yeah. You know, there's an invisible car in one. And yeah. and uh, yeah, it's the in Die Another Day. There's the vanish. It's John Cleese's cue says to uh, uh, to, to to Pierce Brosnan's Bond. Uh, yeah, mm. it gets. It, there's a whole lot of weird stuff in Bond, and we we could probably do a show just looking at the gadgets yeah. and how mental they are. Uh, mental in the sense of bizarre and and weird and crazy and that kind of and non- cannot physically be me. Yeah, uh, just just weird stuff that comes from your head. Um, but th- this is the thing. I mean, so I, I think for most people, if they look at this film and they look at it as a Bond film, they'll probably see elements of the James Bond films that they know and they love being parodied and lampooned. And, you know, a, a little bit of a, a jokingly nod at it. Um, and certainly if, you, if you've if you bought this film in error, thinking it was the Casino Royale <laughs> with Daniel Craig, I suspect your head is going to be well and truly melted. Um, but where I think that the real joy in this film is, is in how it influences other things. And, and in particular, Ben, you've already said it, Austin Powers. Yeah. And it's quite a handy note, uh, probably, in which to, to kind of leave this hanging. Uh, we, we don't really do two-parters on this uh, very often, but this is kind of a two-parter. In our next episode, we're going to talk about Austin Powers. And we can talk a little bit more about how Casino Royale fits in with that, because I think if I hadn't shown you this, a I, lot of Austin Powers would not have made more sense. Yeah, well... Uh, Definitely seeing um, a lot of the stuff that happened in Casino Royale, mm-hmm. and because um, I'd never seen it before, like Austin Powers, just I was like, "Wow, that's so fresh!" You know, whenever I first seen it, like, mm-hmm. um, I was like that's ingenious. The ideas that they came up with, but really, they've just taken them from <laughs> Casino Royale <laughs> and kind of made it make more sense. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like that scene in Father Ted where they they find that B track from an obscure Swedish act and go, oh, sure, nobody will ever have heard of this. We'll just pretend that we wrote it and they turn it into My Lovely Horse. Yeah. And then it turns out that people have actually heard of it after all. I, I, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> certainly it's, it's an accusation that has been leveled against that later film uh, at other points. And, and we're the next show, we're going to tease out a little bit more about the influences and things on that. But this is... Um, definitely a film that has been forgotten by a lot of people because its critical reputation was so poor at the time people the critics didn't like it audiences went to see it in droves but it kind of got forgot and then the legal issues around it as well which I, I think i should probably touch on so charles feldman having acquired these i mean having acquired the rights to this book then got into a legal battle with um the, the bomb producers of the broccolis for basically the next 40 years um, in the 1980s, uh, there was also a, a bond, um, an unofficial bond called uh, Never Say Never Again, uh, which stars Sean Connery. Like Sean Connery, 15 years after he retired, he comes back to the role. Um, and it was sort of disregarded as well because of all these legal issues around it. You know, the Buckleys were very, very keen that they have a very specific set of criteria for what counts as a Bond film yeah, and these films kind of just got shoved aside and even now I don't think either of them is out on Blu-ray which is a, a, a tragedy because they should be reissued there should I mean I want to see more about how this thing came together you know there must be other material that was cut from this film mm. be- although I mean it's sometimes it jars so closely it's very obvious that there isn't material that should be there um, 
but th- th- this film basically got into loggerheads for years and years and years, and it was only sort of rounded up whenever they did the the Daniel Craig films. Yeah. Um, although Pierce Brosnan was actually the one who suggested first of all that that they do an adaptation of Casino Royale. Um, he wanted to do a straight version of it with uh, Quentin Tarantino as director. Well, that would have been interesting. Wow. And it was talked about for a long time. This was seriously what they were going to do after Die Another Day. He really pushed for it. And I would love to have seen Pierce Brosnan do that sort of iconic Bond story um, in, in his style. And I think it would be a much better send-off for him. Yeah. Um, they then decided to drop Pierce Brosnan and eventually cast Daniel Craig. But they took the idea and they went back to square one and they did Casino Royale and they did it straight. Um, it's so different from this version though I, I, I haven't seen the Daniel Craig one so you should watch it because yeah. you will wonder what what relation it has to this 1967 <laughs> classic honestly they don't the do it as well it. <laughs> <laughs> there's no magic tricks though no magic tricks there is in fact a casino and they spend <laughs> some actual time in the casino rather than just turning up occasionally for a, a very brief section and then buggering off again yeah it's 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 worth having a look at I forgot to mention ah. the cowboys and the Indians. Yes. What the hell? <laughs> There's just so many ridiculous the things lions, to mention. The uh, monkey uh, <laughs> playing with the bubbles, like oh, oh and uh, oh gosh, who's it? The guy flicking the coin. Uh, George Raft. George Raft, who uh, we was also in uh, some like it hot. Yeah. There's a guy flicking, flicking a coin. coin. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's you basically can be forgiven for not noticing all of the craziness and amongst that, all the craziness. Was that at the casino? Uh-huh. He, he ends up shooting done. himself by accident. Yeah, he just tosses it and then eventually he gets killed as well. Um, but Oh, was that the guy that came over and said, I just fired this gun? And it, yeah. 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 It doesn't shit right. Yeah, she's she's backwards. Yeah. She shot myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so it's George Raft, who basically had done that in, in in film before, and he also did the exact same shtick in Some Like a Hot, which we we covered on a previous edition of the show. You know, all all this stuff, Ben. It all ties in together. <laughs> uh, oh. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I I hope one day that our listeners will will have followed along through everything, and suddenly everything will make a lot more sense. And then they will hail you as a god, Mister Simpson. Ah, well, you know, it's our idea about a pantheon of of, of film. Which Mister Simpson are you talking about? <laughs> Both Mister Simpsons. <laughs> I mean, in the context of James Bond, you could be a Mister Simpson too. I could, yeah. yeah. Every, everyone's Mister Simpson. Everyone's Mister Simpson. <laughs> um, I, I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> um, so if you haven't seen Casino Royale 1967, it is well worth digging out uh, and having a look at it, just to have your brain fried. <laughs> yeah, if you want your brain fried, definitely watch it. You know, and, and if, if, if you're one of those people who thinks that every James Bond film is exactly the same, I promise you, you are completely wrong. <laughs> yes, I acknowledge the error of my ways. One of them is completely different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I'm not going to say anymore. Okay, folks. Um, so as I said, uh, we are cinepunked. Uh, as ever, the voices in your ears have been Ben Simpson. Uh, goodbye. Dr. Rachel Kelly. Bye-bye. And me, Robert J.E. Simpson. Don't forget to uh, like and subscribe if you feel like it. You can leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else that takes reviews. We, we do like reading them. Um, you can contact us on social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook as CinePunked. And you'll also find us on Instagram as CinePunktFilm. Interact with us and uh, we will be in your ears again very soon. <laughs> <laughs>